Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. Over the next three weeks, I will be speaking to three guests who share their different experiences and perspective of working in the justice system to form our very first mini-series. Listen as I take us through different aspects of procedural justice, starting today with Kate Gunson, Detective Chief Inspector for Hampshire. I'm Kate Gunson. I'm a Detective Chief Inspector in Hampshire Police and my current job, I'm responsible for criminal justice and more specifically around courts and case files and standards of investigations. So Kate, when it comes to policing, what does procedural justice sort of mean to you as a, as a police officer? So really within policing, we, we police by consent in the UK, very much so. And procedural justice is key to that because it is it is important that the, the public and our interactions with, with everyone, um, they understand why we are doing things the way we're doing them and that we take into account our victims and witness views and then also that people that are detained for offences get a, a fair chance to also put forward their side of the story. So it's very important that we follow um, set procedures in order for the public to have a perception that what police do is legitimate and that they are, they wish to cooperate with us and not effectively break the law. Okay, so my mind immediately jumps to how do you arrest someone with their consent? <laughs> okay, um, so ultimately arrest by consent is always the best outcome for, for everyone. Um, and, and a way of kind of detailing of how that would happen in principle is that the if it was a spontaneous incident for example that the officer's been directed to by control room reported by a member of the public if, if it was a crime that was actually taking place in front of them um, the officer would attend uh, knowing roughly what it was they were going to attend they would speak to the person that's suspected of committing the act and you know, if I give you an example of somebody seeing someone trying to break into a shop yeah, and the police attend, the police get there whilst the act is still in progress. They get to speak to the person that's 
trying to break into the shop. And at that point, at the point that they arrest someone, they will give them an explanation of what it is they've been arrested for. Okay. Um, And it's that interaction, that engagement with public, even, you know, members of the public who are committing crime, that is really key in ensuring that situations don't escalate and don't result in either violence from the person that they're trying to to detain or actually on public onlookers thinking that something unfair is going on and that not liking what they're seeing in the way that the police are dealing with an incident. I guess these days you have to be really um, sort of careful about people filming everything and then you don't want, I guess, people to get a a view of the police um, of, you know, suddenly all these videos coming out of, you know, it's like police brutality or sort of loads of you with your knees in the back of someone and trying to arrest them on the ground. Because I guess, as we see in America very quickly, um, people form a view, don't they? Yeah. And, and, and it is so easy for situations to have a massive impact on public confidence across the, the board. And, and clearly the situation in America impacted on public confidence in the UK as well. And our officers are really you know, they they themselves have body-worn video, so they themselves uh, record all of their interactions with suspects. Um, so they know that everything they're doing is on their own body-worn video camera anyway, but they are also really aware that most members of the public now will have a mobile phone with a video record facility and will be recording incidents. It's, it's the way society is now. Um, and actually... You know, regardless of the fact that they they will be caught on video, we clearly um, want to train our officers that the best way of dealing with um, victims, witnesses, suspects, every member of the public is is treating people with respect and ensuring that through doing that, we we maintain public confidence and maintain public trust in the police that's that's the key thing that that we aim for with all of our interactions and that's why so many processes and procedures are in place to ensure that what we do is perceived as fair right yeah and so i guess it's threefold so procedural justice is important for you the police to be able to do your job well and fairly and effectively um it's important for the individual who might be burgling the shop or doing whatever because it's important that they understand what's going on. Um, and as you were saying, the third group is the public. It's important for the public because it's basically, would you say it's like a, it's not really a PR exercise, is it? It's sort of deeper than that. It's about public trust. It's Yeah, it's definitely about public trust. Public trust, public reassurance, um, the fact that the police are there to respond to incidents of concern to members of their community and that actually, you know, public opinion is taken into consideration and taken into account in the way that we deal with certain crime types and certain issues in communities. Um, You you know, certainly policing evolves regularly based on what's happening in society as a whole. And so we need to really be acutely aware that um, we are in, in, in step with what the opinion is in our communities. And, and very often that's achieved through the community engagement with the local 
officers who work in particular neighbourhoods and and have a lot of meetings with community groups, community leaders, with members of the public, public reassurance. We have um, independent advisory groups who will very often be invited in very early in investigations just to, uh, you know, actually be able to realise why the police are taking the action that they're taking in an investigation. So we're really conscious of having everything open to that level of public scrutiny and complying, showing that we're complying with the expectations of the people that we're serving effectively. Yeah. Okay. So if we take um, the guy who's burgling a shop, maybe, uh, let's call him Ben, and you're wandering along the street and you see this burglary taking place. Could you sort of walk us through sort of, you know, what happens, then the arrest, and then through to the sort of custody suite? And at what points the procedural justice sort of come come in? Yeah, so effectively, um, almost immediately, there's processes that we follow um, in our decision making around, you know, why we would end up arresting someone in the first place. So in this instance, Ben, you suspect, is going to break into the shop. So he's going to commit a, a, what we would call a non-dwelling burglary potentially that's what your suspicion is based on what you can see in front of you what's been reported by members of the public via the control room it may well be that another officer is actually getting an account from somebody who's witnessed everything that's gone on so you take into account all of the different sources of information and sometimes this happens really quickly and really on the spot and and our officers are trained in the national decision making model which is Basically, that based on all the information that they're aware of, they will go through a process where they then will think, well, what laws apply to this? So in this case, um, the, the you know the criminal law of, of burglary is, is the law that you're looking at. You've got the powers of arrest in that circumstance because it's, it's a necessary and proportionate response to what's occurring in front of you, a crime, a crime taking place at the time that you're witnessing it. So at that point, the officer would use their powers of arrest. They would identify themselves if they weren't easily identifiable as a as a uniform officer. If it was a plain clothes officer, they would have to show the person that they were speaking to, that they were a police officer, identify themselves with their warrant card. There's then very structured um, wording that is used in an arrest scenario where the person committing the crime is given their caution at that point yeah the, the bit we always see on television yeah and the, you know the the purpose of all of all of these steps is is that actually this is consistent and this is what happens every time somebody's arrested every time somebody's arrested they are cautioned and the reason for being given the caution is it it protects their their rights as an individual that you know, from that early initial stage, they are, in the wording of the caution, told that anything they say potentially may be used in evidence at a later stage. So they're made aware of that and that, you know, they, they don't have to say anything at that stage. Um, the arrest would take place. The person would be transported to a custody centre. Um, and then at the custody centre, there's a check and balance at that stage where a custody officer is then responsible for all authorising the detention of that individual because, you know, arresting someone 
is a big deal, really. You're taking away somebody else's freedoms. Yeah, and I imagine pretty scary. Yeah, certainly, you know, people that have never faced that before, it is a really big event to happen. And it is really important that police officers explain clearly why certain things are happening in the way that they happen and you know why they're why they're brought into custody at the point of being presented in they they call it presented in front of the custody sergeant the circumstances surrounding the arrest are relayed to the custody sergeant and the custody sergeant then as a decision maker will will ensure that what's taken place was correct and was lawful and necessary and proportionate so all of that is is recorded in detail and and authorized and then at that stage obviously the the person's detention is authorized um, and they are in police detention it's all set around time frames of how long we can keep people in detention um, without seeking further authority to keep them in detention for longer periods of time. Sorry, how long are you allowed to keep an individual in? So that initial period of detention lasts for 24 hours. Okay, and then, then you have to let them go if there's no sort of charges can be brought. Yeah, so basically um, that initial 24-hour period is should be... Um, adequate length of time in most investigations to have gathered all of your information to have obtained an account from the detained person by way of a recorded interview and to have sought a decision on the outcome so either you're not taking any further action in relation to it because every bit of information you've gathered has led you to believe that actually in this instance Either this isn't the person or a crime hasn't been committed, so they would be released with no further action. Um, It may be that within that 24 hours, you haven't had enough time to gather all of the relevant information needed. If there's forensic evidence to be included, sometimes that takes a lot longer to obtain than the custody, than the initial period of custody detention. So you might end up bailing someone or you might end up um, releasing them under investigation without bail conditions. And that that very much depends on the seriousness of the crime that you're dealing with and whether you need to enforce bail conditions to prevent, you know, further offending or interference with witnesses, all of the um, things that might assist with with the course of justice not being affected by the individual that's suspected of committing the offence. And then ultimately, certain number of people get charged within that 24 hours in police custody with the offence because you've reached the required standard for, for seeking either a charging decision from the Crown Prosecution Service or on some offences that are much lower level, police can make charging decisions. Yeah. And at that point, um, they go either to prison to await trial, and at which point it sort of comes to the end of the police involvement. I'm just trying to work out where your job sort of ends with that individual, if you like, and at what point the procedural justice, you know, becomes someone else's problem. In reality, you know, after the the point of somebody being charged with an offence, the police procedural justice element continues because we're responsible for ensuring that all of the correct case material makes its way through to the Crown Prosecution Service who prosecute the offence. 
Okay, I see. So it's not just I'm getting too caught up on the actual human being heading off maybe to prison, but actually there's the other bit, which is all the information and making sure that's organised and presented properly. Yeah, and that's the, um, you know, that's key in terms of um, where we're really held to account around ensuring that, you know, we have we have the witness evidence, we have the CCTV evidence, all of the forensic evidence, if it's relevant, the, the suspect's interview account will obviously be transcribed and available for scrutiny by the court. Um, and all of that work still takes place post the point at which the person gets charged with the offence. So, so the investigating officer's job doesn't doesn't conclude until the conclusion of a court case. Okay, that could be years, right? Um, it it in some cases it can take a very long time to reach the conclusion of the court case, and you know, in complex fraud cases, you could be talking. Yeah. Um, in the majority of cases. Are that you would hope that they would get through the court system fairly quickly, but where we where we are at the moment, we do have backlogs um, within the courts and within trials, and and that's uh, that you know that situation's unfortunately been made worse by the lockdown. And yeah, I was just going to mention COVID has really um, sort of put a spanner in the works there on an already very sort of strained system, hasn't it? Because, you know, speedy justice, I remember, I can't remember which government or who was talking about speedy justice, but the speed that things happen is an element of procedural justice, is it not? And we don't, certainly in the courts, um, which is no fault of their own, that element seems to be really not working. No, and it it is an it is clearly an element of um, procedural justice and people's faith and belief in the system, and and we've um, found real issues with victims and witnesses during this time frame because their expectations have been set around when something will be in court, and then unfortunately due to lockdown, the courts a lot of the courts didn't operate in the first lockdown. And so um, contacts with our victims and witnesses, you know, a lot of them um, have become very disengaged with the process because of the time that's elapsed and the perception that, um, you know, it's it's unimportant because it's been pushed back. Their case has been pushed back or relisted for a date, um, you know, six months later than originally intended. So it's it's really important for our witness care teams to be sending the right messages and really explaining to those victims and witnesses what the problems are, why why this has had to happen, why there's been a delay in, in their case and them being given their opportunity to um, give their evidence in court. And it has been, you know, it's a really difficult time. And, and there have been delays within the criminal justice system way before um, we went into the first lockdown, but it has only highlighted that actually when people expect a court case on a particular date and then it gets cancelled, the impact on victims and witnesses is that they then lose faith and trust in that system. Absolutely. And I, I can't imagine how difficult it is if if a case is taking years, you've A, got the trauma for some individuals, maybe on both sides, the trauma of the weight, and that sort of hang, awful, awful 
um, sort of black cloud hanging over you and that date hanging over you and what that does, actually. But then also the memories of people who've seen things and witnessed things. I mean, I can't remember what happened yesterday half the time. You know, what impact does that have on the credibility of witnesses? It does have a real um, impact on people's people's memory, the time delay and the difference the difference that that time delay makes in terms of how impacted they were at the point that the actual crime t- crime took place and then their recollection of it up to two years later could be a very different thing. So it is, you know, it is very important that the justice system works effectively and efficiently. And, and by that, I mean that things do progress in a timely manner, that case progression is really prioritised and it is you know, is vital for for everybody, for victims, witnesses and suspects that things progress through the system in an efficient and effective way. And you mentioned the um, the forensic teams a little bit earlier. Um, and obviously, they are the people who'd come into a crime scene. So say Ben had broken into the shop and sort of trashed it and stolen a few things, um, generally made a bit of a mess. Um, at what point do the forensic teams get called and is it do they get called by you? How does that bit work? Yeah, so that again is um, very dependent on the crime type and and with police resources and austerity measures being as they have been, the forensic teams will attend scenes, particularly in cases that we would call high harm cases, so where... Um, where there's been physical violence, if it was if somebody had been stabbed, um, if it was a case of a sexual assault or a, a case involving a, a child or young person, then the officers initially attending would put through that request that they would want a crime scene investigator to come out to that incident. Okay, so they wouldn't necessarily come out to a burglary to take fingerprints. So. Um, a shop burglary, no, potentially they wouldn't unless it was linked in with other crime types or unless it was something that was a specific concern in that area that we were trying to target. Um, unfortunately, where we are with things, we, you know, a, a lot of cases where there may be forensic potential, we just don't have the resource to attend those crimes. Right. And so I guess when it comes to procedural justice then when the forensic teams come in there's a different almost I mean the same concept of procedural justice for them but theirs is more about making sure they gather the best evidence possible in order to help the police in order for you to get it to the court yeah I mean the 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 forensic teams you know much like um the purpose of police gathering all their other sources of information and evidence is for that objective overview of what's happened so you know although it's us that would be responsible for asking them to attend they are just as likely to um, present evidence that benefits the defendant as they are to prevent to present evidence that is beneficial to the prosecution case so they they are they are gathering the information of, of, you know, what the scene is telling them. Yeah. Um, and they're not influenced by one side more than the other. And in a lot of cases now, um, you will find that expert witnesses are agreed 
both between the prosecution and the defence and that they you used to have the situation where both sides would get their own expert witnesses, whereas now, because they are neutral and they will report on on what they find, both sides will accept and agree that that evidence is the correct evidence. Yeah. Okay. And have you, in your sort of career as a police officer, got any examples of procedural justice going well or um, equally if there's if you've got an example of something having gone bad? Yeah I mean I've you know some of the really difficult um, roles and and jobs that I've worked in I've I've been a a detective for many years now and worked within um, serious crime cases with child abuse cases sexual assault cases Um, and in those areas it's always really key that that the principles of procedural justice are followed to obtain the best outcome for everyone involved in that investigation and by that I mean even if we don't reach a, a what for a victim or a witness is the outcome they desire in terms of a charging decision because the evidence just isn't at the threshold required for a charging decision uh, victims and witnesses are able to question our investigation they they are able there's victim right to review within the victims code now that they can actually find out why their case didn't progress um what you know information that they may want to know either from the police side or if it was a crown prosecution decision they can ask for a review of the decision making from their side and all of that assists with procedural justice um you you know there will be court cases that that I've had that have ended up um, with hung juries when actually in my in my mind, having investigated the case, I felt it was a strong case, but clearly you have the 12 members of the jury who will make their decisions based entirely on what they hear in court. And that that is our system. And, and you know, that is procedural justice. You're judged by your peers. And that must be quite frustrating when you've been close to it and you, I mean, as you say, it's, it's the right way. Um, well, it's the, it's the way we do it. <laughs> um, whether it's the right way or the wrong way is uh, for another pod. But, um, but yeah, it must be quite frustrating. My question actually was going to be about, um, I imagine a lot of it is about being able to be personable as well and to sort of put someone at ease, even if it's someone who's been misbehaving. And so, does a lot actually rest on the individual police officer's character and sort of social skills and demeanour to that sense? Yeah, very much so. And that and that it is the one skill area that is really difficult to yeah. teach people joining the police because people, you know, human nature is such that, that no one person is the same as anybody else. And actually you could have 10 different officers all attend the same incident and all 10 it has a slightly varied outcome in how they interact with the suspects with the witnesses with the people the members of the public observing and I think we they have all the tools so that in practice procedural justice um, will be used and and non-judgmental when speaking to members of the public, respectful, empathy, compassion, all of the things that we want all of our officers to portray at incidents. But 
you can't get away from the fact that human interaction is such that on occasions, the way an officer speaks to a suspect, a victim or a witness, the reaction they receive back is not what they were expecting. And by that, I mean, we have incidents where officers end up getting assaulted at, at um, incidents that they attend, that things escalate, that other staff have to be called to those incidents, that victims completely disengage because they didn't like the way the officers spoke to them when they attended. And, and so the communication and the ability of police at initial incidents is key and it's also key around setting expectations for um, victims and members of the public around what's actually going to happen with this incident and not um, not promising them the world when actually the outcome that outcome may never have been achievable making sure that we're we're honest from the start around what we can achieve with what is being reported to us and and that we we stick to what we've said to people. So very often we will um, do what we call a victim contract, whereby the investigator will agree with the victim in a crime to update them over a set period of time. And clearly to the victim, some you know, on occasions this is the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And so that update from that investigator is the most important thing that they are waiting for. And and it's just ensuring that our officers are are aware that they need to appreciate not appreciate things from the point of view of the victim, but certainly stick to what their agreements have been and certainly um, update people when they've said that they're going to update people and make sure that people stay engaged. Exactly. And maybe on the day on the day that they said they'd do it, because, you know, there's nothing like, I'm sure lots of people listening will have dates and times in their mind when they either heard bad news or something terrible happened to them. And then all you want to do is talk to the people that can maybe help you out. And and you remember, don't you, if someone says, well, I'll call you at four o'clock on Saturday, you'll be sat by the phone from about 3.30 waiting for that important call. Um, So yeah, I can see how that element of it would be so crucially important. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining me today to share your experiences of working within the police force. Listen next week to hear our next segment of the Procedural Justice mini-series, where we'll learn more about forensic investigations from Joe Millington, a forensic scientist. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.